Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the CAPPC Podcast Academy, where we discuss key mental health care strategies and issues for primary care. This is a project of CAPPC, which is a component of Project TEACH, supported by the New York State Office of Mental Health. Today's topic is mental health issues that can come up related to gender, um, and specifically taking a look at uh, transgender uh, issues that can come up. Remember to find out more about this and other important primary care mental health topics, visit our website at www.capcny.org. And so with us today is Dr. Eric McMaster, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at SUNY Upstate. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McMaster. My pleasure. Great. Um, so just a, as always, a little uh, clinical disclaimer. Uh, keep in mind that this discussion does not cons- constitute any medical advice and is more education, guidance, those kinds of things. So, uh, Dr. McMaster, can we jump right into this? Uh, talk to us a little bit about this idea of uh, gender variation, um, this concept of gender and, and thinking about it in children and adolescents. Uh, what do we know about this? Why is this uh, something that's coming up as an issue uh, in primary care and other clinical settings? So I think it's a kind of a multifaceted issue at the moment. I think that what we're seeing now in society is um, more of an acceptance for some gender variants. There's a large uh, transgender uh, mental and physical health uh, movement coming. So I think that uh, people are feeling more open uh, to discussing this with their primary care physician uh, during appointments uh, where it might have otherwise been untold. Um, And I think probably the big uh, concern I hear from uh, providers is, uh, is this real? Like, what is uh, gender dysphoria? What is gender nonconformity? And then uh, uh, any of the other um, sort of terms that come uh, down the pike towards these providers. And I think the big thing to recognize is that gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria are two very different things. Uh, Gender nonconformity is exactly what it sounds like. It's... um, how much an individual does or does not adhere to cultural standards of uh, gender, you know, boys that wear pink, if we're looking very very stereotypical, um, versus dysphoria, where there's, you know, legitimate uh, mental health uh, issues uh, in addition to uh, gender issues. So So is it it fair to say that really nonconformity does not necessarily mean that someone's going to have a lot of emotional challenges related to it? Correct. Yeah, actually part of uh, normal child development is some gender exploration. So some of these younger kids you'll see that are playing with dolls or wanting to like different colors. It may be causing some issues with them with peers, but they're not really dysphoric about it. It's part of their normal exploration of who they are as a person. Sure. Yeah, and my sense is this is that you know conversation you know where, not to be too gendered here, but you know, the dad comes in and says, hey, you know, my four-year-old, you know, had some interest in, you know, nail polish or, you know, wanted to play with the sister's Barbies, you know, should I be concerned? And it sounds like that's not really where we're worried about and we don't want yeah. needing to talk about here. So the concern actually in, in that paradigm might be the fact that uh, unnecessarily stigmatizing the child for normative exploration may, you know, cause sure. more damage than just letting them play with something that may not be technically gender approved of by the parent. And, and I think that may be part of our understanding that, you know, again, children explore what's in their environment and, you know, 
being able to have red and pink on my fingers, that might be kind of an interesting thing that I'm going to take a look at. And uh, we, you're right, we have this sort of increasing awareness that we can explore different things, uh, and our children are open to that, and they're sort of picking up on that right now. Mm -hmm. So at what point in time do we think we, how, how do we know if something's moving from nonconformity to dysphoria? I think you're looking at the the natural evolution of things. I think something that we discount, and unfortunately part of it is the time constraints we have with patients, is having a dialogue with them, asking them how they identify um, what they feel like their internal experience is. Um, kids that I have in my, uh, my clinic um, who have gender dysphoria range from the age of six uh, all the way through uh, to early 20s, um, and part of that is just sort of having a discussion um, with the the mood symptoms, the, the amount of distress that come uh, comes along with it. Some kids are not uh, distressed by it at all, um, but, you know, having regular follow-up with them and addressing this as part of a, a sexual health um, screening tool that, you know, primary care docs are already doing is, is very important. Sure. So it sounds like this idea that primary care is probably one of the best places to continue to follow us over time. They have that longitudinal relationship with children and families as they get older. Yeah. And if we're looking at the DSM uh, criteria for diagnosing gender dysphoria, um, it has to exist for at least six months. Um, so if you're having kids that are sort of just doing the normative gender exploration and it's lasting only a little bit of time, or they're, you know, inhabiting that for a little bit longer. There's there's a, a hard and fast time rule technically for diagnosing, but that's in the context of dysphoric symptoms. It's, it's right in the diagnosis. Absolutely. Makes sense. So I think another thing that we hear questions about is this idea of what about when this pops up uh, you know, more with younger kids versus, you know, later on adolescents? Are there differences? Does, do they mean the same thing coming up in different developmental stages? Sure. So I think that, uh, like I've been saying, it's uh, it's about having a dialogue um, with your patient. Uh, it definitely means different things based on psychosocial development, but also um, physical development. Uh, little kids aren't going to maybe necessarily have the uh, amount of dysphoria, you know, secondary uh, sex characteristic based, whereas your kids who have gone through puberty um, can be quite dysphoric over the way their bodies are changing, um, you know, natal females looking um, more like adult women having breast growth, um, natal men having deepening of voice, Adam's apple, that kind of thing. Um, those can definitely add another layer of dysphoria because their internal experience is no longer uh, meshing with their, their external experience. Right. And, and when you're talking, when you're saying the, the term natal, is, am I correct in understanding that's uh, when someone born as a female, born as a male? Correct. And, and is there any difference in the sort of the consistency of that sense of dysphoria, whether it comes up in children versus adolescents, childhood versus adolescents? Yeah, um, as you know, as people go through their developmental um, milestones, they're going to have more of a, a concrete sense of their, their gender. Uh, so with younger children, it's going to be a little bit more fluid. It may not be as consistent all the time, whereas your adolescence okay. moving on, it's going to cement more. And that's, you know, I basically have the conversation with parents, whether we refer them to endocrine at a younger age of sort of saying, do they want to do hormone blockers? Do they want to do just kind of watchful waiting? And that's very dependent on the conversation with the child and the parent. Right, right. So. 
And then, uh, Dr. McMaster, just thinking about terminology, um, how can folks make sense of the of terms like cis and trans? So I think uh, part of this is uh, us taking responsibility of, of learning uh, vocabulary. Um, right. You know, the, the Cliff's Notes version would be something to the effect of, you know, cis would be someone who is natally male presenting as male, okay. uh, vice versa for women. Trans, right. I think we've explored. Uh, right. Then you'll find other kids um, in your practice that may identify as gender fluid or the other term is gender queer, where they're kind of um, adopting characteristics of both uh, male and female uh, genders. They may identify as agendered, where they're kind of saying, I'm not really either, I'm just me. Um, so I think making sure to clarify gender is different than sexuality, and that's different than natal uh, sexual parts, basically. Absolutely. There's three yeah. three things working together. And, I, and um, gender fluid, would that sort of fit with gender queer, or do you, f do you see that differently? I see them as, as relatively similar. I think that uh, gender queer tends to be um, a little bit more of the popular uh, word I okay. hear at the moment. Gender fluid is uh, used pretty interchangeably with the kids I see also. Gotcha. Cool. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that'll help folks. Uh, yeah that are, uh, as you said, you know, trying to develop their vocabulary in these issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, when we think about uh, the emotional challenges for these uh, children, adolescents, it sounds like it can be really quite uh, distressing. What, what are the kinds of risks and issues that can come up? So uh, in general, um, there's a lot of uh, comorbid depression and anxiety. Um, in uh, transgender kids, even some gender nonconforming kids may, you know, experience some of these, but they may be independent. Um, so the, the water does get a little murky, but uh, mm -hmm. theoretically, um, transgender uh, individuals have an increased risk of depression and anxiety. Uh, the big thing and part of the screening that primary care docs should be doing also is there's uh, a very uh, significant increase in the risk of attempted and completed suicide in transgender individuals also. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's a multifactorial. I think we could be here for a much longer podcast if I was sure. to do all of that. But I, you know, I think a lot of it is even though there's more of a forefront of uh, trans rights and trans acceptance, and society is is changing their definition of gender, it is still a very constrictive um, society. Um, a right. lot of these kids are socially marginalized. Um, they're you know they do or don't have access to gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, it, it really makes a very difficult uh, time with uh, actualizing your internal experience. Uh, right. It, it really strikes me from, you know, think about like that whole ecological model from, you know, internalized self-stigma to what's going on within the family, acceptance versus non-acceptance, what's going on in the school environment, right? Are they getting bullied? Or do they have a supportive peer group? And then, you know, broadly, what are we, what kinds of messages are we hearing in society? I think, you know, you've highlighted there is some ongoing sort of movement towards acceptance, but then at the same time, we hear about, you know, uh, the North Carolina HB2 bill. Yeah. You know, sort of saying, you know, you can't uh, even go to the restroom, you know, of your understood gender, you know, the, and, and I think then associated with that, a lot of the chatter that can be really quite negative and sometimes really hateful. And kids and adolescents are sponges. They pick this up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the the whole uh, 
situation of, of trans, uh, trans um, mental health, trans physical health, sits at a really interesting intersection between um, being, you know, medical slash psychiatric and being sociological in a sense that um, what are we doing as a society to advocate for these individuals? Uh, you know, I mean, imagine if all of a sudden it was incorrect to be some other different way in, in legislative eyes or in, you know, society's eyes, how that might change uh, the collective views, um, internal experience. Uh, and, you know, it puts a, a stress, we refer to it as minority stress, um, on the right. individuals, and that increases your risk across the board of multiple uh, social uh, issues, multiple psychiatric issues, and ultimately uh, medical health issues as well. Absolutely. Uh, you've been listening to the CAPPC Podcast Academy. If you're interested, check out the website to learn more about our program. Join us again next time.